Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. The Devil's Plan B. So, so as we've been going through uh, the book of Acts so far, uh, you know, we've seen a tremendous outpouring of God's Spirit, right? I mean, the day of Pentecost, the 120 disciples are gathered there, the, the, the followers of Christ, and, and the Holy Spirit uh, fills them, falls upon them, fills them, uh, miraculous uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And uh, not only that, but we see a great transformation in the disciples, a great transformation in Peter, you know, he going from, from timid to boldness, and that's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we see what was 120 believers gathered together to thousands. In fact, that one day, 3,000 souls come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it just continues as we're reading through these chapters. It's a great work of the Holy Spirit. Well, we pick it up here at verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there any among them who lacked, for all, were all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. So what a tremendous, great work of the Holy Spirit. And what we see here now in this chapter is that a great work of the Holy Spirit produces a great unity among the saints. You know, if you think about it, if you are a born-again believer here this morning, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside you right now. He's a sign and a seal of our salvation. So if you're a, whole, if you're a believer this morning, you have the same Holy Spirit that I have this morning. The same Holy Spirit that Franklin Graham has this morning. The same Holy Spirit that Billy Graham, his father, had. We all have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us. And when believers are fully submitted to the Holy Spirit and filled with that same Holy Spirit, there's going to be unity among us. And we see that here in chapter 4. The Bible says that they had one heart and one soul. What does that mean, one heart and one soul? What it really, what it really means is that they were in harmony in thought and affection. And so, you know, you think about that. Well, what does that look like? I mean, it sounds great. You know, we could all sing around, sit around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. But, you know, what does it mean to have one heart and one soul? Well, you know, the scriptures actually shows us what that means. For example, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we read that the disciples were in one accord, not a Honda, they were in one accord in prayer. They were united in prayer. What does that mean? Well, first of all, they were probably thankful for the exact same things. You know, this morning as we're praying for the harvest, I would bet that everybody here that has a relationship with the Lord is, is agreeing in prayer. We're all saying, Lord, yes. Man, maybe you've been praying for somebody 
to come to uh, the Franklin's, to the God Loves You Tour this afternoon. I've been praying. I'm sure you have. Maybe you've invited people. And I would agree, or I would think, I would assume that we're all here agreeing, yeah, Lord, bring in a harvest. I bet there's nobody here that says, Lord, I, man, I hope nobody shows up. Man, I hope I, I just, man, I, nobody, no, why? Because we're of one heart and one mind in our prayers, right? We're agreeing in prayer. So being thankful for the same things and, and seeking the Lord in the same things. That's one aspect of being of one heart and one mind. We're also reading in second, or excuse me, in chapter two, verse one, that they were in one accord in one place. Here we are gathered together here as a fellowship. And and yeah, albeit it's a small fellowship. But believers are gathering all over in fellowships throughout the world, or at least throughout the United States this morning, in other time zones, of course, it's different times. But they were together for corporate worship, to worship together. And it's so important, man, those last couple years of COVID, man, that was, that was rough. It was rough for me as a pastor, and I'm sure it was rough for you as, as, a, as just a person there, you know, a Christian wanting to go to church but feeling like you can't, or maybe the churches were closed, whatever it was. Corporate worship is so important. So we're gathered together and we're fellowshipping with one another. That thing that we're going to be doing October 30th, it's not an outreach event, although if somebody comes that doesn't have a relationship, that's great. We invite anybody. But the purpose is for fellowship, for us to encourage one another. It's like what we do after church this morning, what you were just doing a few minutes ago before the service started. So being of one heart and one mind is, is corporately worshiping together and being in fellowship. Jesus said this in John 17, 11. He's praying to the Father before his crucifixion. And he says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. There's another picture. One heart and one mind. You know, the Trinity, the triune, the three persons, the three gods, you know, three and one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are of one heart and one mind as well. You think about that. Do you think there was any competition between them? You think like the Holy Spirit said, yeah, you know, Jesus said that, but man, don't listen to him, you know. No. One heart and one mind. You didn't have one complaining about the other like Jesus said, you know, I had to give up my, my uh, deity. To, you know, I had, to give, I had to humble myself and become a man. And man, the Father, he's really rough, you know. I mean, there's no complaining, right? And they didn't have different values or different goals. The, 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 the goals and the values was to glorify the Father, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. So we get an idea when Jesus says, Father, that they may be one as we are. Man, no competition, no complaints. We have the same values and the same goals. Paul said this in Romans 15, verse 5 and 6. He said, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see the example of the common goal of glorifying God in all that we do. You know, some people are more concerned with getting glory for themselves than glory with the Lord. But, but when we're united together and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, man, we want to glorify God. We all want to glorify God. We don't, we don't care about ourselves. We want God to be glorified. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 and 11. It says, Now I plead with you, brethren, 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing and there be, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. So when Paul is urging the Corinthians to be of the same mind, to be joined in the same mind, to speak the same thing. He's not saying, hey, you guys, you have to be a robot. You know, you have to just, we have to say the exact same words, you know. It's not like the Stepford Wives or something like that, you know. We're not, we're not robots. We're not clones. And hopefully, Lord willing, <laughs> we're certainly not a cult, you know, here. So what was Paul talking about? Well, I think one of the things is what he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 5, he said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the mind of Christ? And, and that Paul goes on from there and starts talking about the humility of Christ. And we're all to be humble. In other words, we put someone else ahead of ourselves. That's, that, that, that's what Paul is referring to. Because if you look at the church in Corinth, what were they doing? They were suing one another. They were saying, hey, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Franklin, or I'm of, you know, Calvary this, or, you know, we were picking people that were, were, were under them, you know, and, and it's like a, it was like a clique, so to speak. That's not what Paul was talking about. You know, when something is not perfectly joined, you know, so I, I've, I've been doing a little bit of word working. Um, we were working on our camper trailer and I and I and uh, we we took out the heater in this camper. And so we had this big gaping hole and there was a, a, a cabinet door above it. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to make a, a cabinet door that fits over that hole and stuff. So so I tried my hand at woodworking and, and uh, made a cabinet. And, uh, you know, it took me a few attempts and uh, it actually turned out pretty good. I don't have a picture of it, but it actually turned out pretty good. Um, not as good as some people I know in our fellowship that do excellent woodwork. But, you know, for, for a novice, it wasn't too bad. But, you know, I'm looking at it going, oh, man, I see these little gaps. It's not, it's not perfectly joined. But that's what Paul is talking about, being perfectly joined and when something's not perfectly joined, what is it? You see division. You see separation. And Paul calls that disunity contentions there in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 1. And that word contentions, it means quarrels, debates, and strife. Now we all know what a quarrel is, right? A quarrel is a heated argument or disagreement typically about a trivial issue and between people who are usually on good terms. Husbands and wives quarrel sometimes. They love each other. They're devoted to one another. They're devoted to the marriage. But you know what? They quarrel. They have heated discussion. Well, we never do. Teresa and I never do. But we've heard other people do. No, <laughs> Debates. You know what a debate is? Have you ever gone to a debate? A debate is a public, a public thing. And sometimes people have heated arguments and they bring it out in public or in a group of people. That's debates, a public disagreement. And of course, strife. Strife, the definition literally is an exertion or contention for superiority. And I'm better, or my, my, my stand is better than yours, or whatever. And then finally, this last scripture that I wanted to share that gives us an idea what one heart and one mind means. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. He says, For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. And you look around the room today, we're all individuals. 
We're not clones of one another. We don't, we, you know, we don't just you know, say the same thing you know, exactly. I mean, we have the same goals and same visions. We want to glorify the Lord, but we're different. We have different personalities, different characteristics. We even look different. And just like the physical body, members of a body, you know, your, your body members, your fingers, your, your internal organs, whatever, they have differing functions. They don't all do the same thing. And they have differing glory. I mean, you know, you could look at my face and then you could look at my big toe. I, I, you know, hopefully my, my face is better looking than my big toe, you know. But you understand, there's differing glory and differing visibility. There's some organs you just don't look at, right? I mean, that's, they're, they're hidden or they're internal in the body. But they all serve one purpose. They all serve one purpose. And what is it? It's the well-being of the body. I know my fist doesn't one night just come up and bam, hit me in the face, you know, like, why'd you do that? Well, I don't like you, you know, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. You know, we don't do that unless you're, you know, a little bit off. <laughs> Maybe you do that, but um, most people don't do that. But you get the idea. We're all different, but we're here for the well-being of the body. That's what's being of one, the same mind and the same heart. That's what it looks like from Scripture. And that's the description that we read about the church in Acts here. In chapter 4. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that church? Man, I'd like to go. I'd like to pastor that church. <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> Listen, great unity leads to great empathy. Because if you read this, it says, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And they cared for one another. Nobody, nobody had an unmet need. I always pray that when, you know, when we end up church, you know, praying for church and praying, Lord, I pray nobody leaves with an unmet need. You know, I might think, well, man, wouldn't that be great if all of us sold our houses and pooled all our money here at Calvary Chapel and then we just distributed it evenly among everyone else? You know, that's communism. <laughs> communism is what's yours is mine. And some people like that, right? I like what Margaret Thatcher, now some people say socialism and communism are different. I don't see a, much of a difference between the two, maybe to a, an extent of sever, severity or something. But Margaret Thatcher said this, and you probably know this quote. She said, the problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money. And you know, that's so true. So we're not talking about communism, where we're going to take, you guys sell all your stuff, we're going to pool it together, and then we're going to distribute it evenly. No. Christianity is not what's yours is mine. Christianity is, is what's mine is yours. It's a hard attitude. And that's what we see here. Look at verse 33. It says, With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. With great power. And we've seen power of the Holy Spirit displayed here right in this chapter. We've seen the gifts of the Spirit in display. You know, the, the, the tongues and all these people are like, they're drawn to what was going on there at Pentecost. The mighty rushing wind. There's all this power, you know, and, and, and we look at that and, and that's what you think. When you read this verse, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Holy Spirit or of the Lord Jesus. And we think, man, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting to me is this verse, it's tucked in between verse 32 and verse 34 and verse 35. And I think that's significant. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
That's how people know that they, they see a church where people are loving one another, agape loving, you know, selfish or selfless love. And they go, man, that's appealing because the world doesn't have it. Paul wrote this about power in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He said, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. So there, there's a separation there. And in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And this is why. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. See, the power was not demonstrated in the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And that's what people think. Man, we need the power. We need the gifts of the Spirit flowing in this church so that you know, we, we need to see those gifts flowing. But the power was demonstrated in the way they lived their lives, the way they loved one another, the way they were selfless towards one another. A body of believers that have the same mind and heart towards one another is a powerful witness to the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Because apart from Christ, we wouldn't be this way, would we? We'd all be fighting for our own. And then it says, and great grace was upon them all. And that word grace is the word charis, where you get charisma or charismatic. It's when we talk, when you read about the gifts of the Spirit, that's the same Greek word, charis. But it literally means favor. And there could be different things that, that uh, Luke, who wrote this, the book of Acts, it could be different things that he was referring to. He could have meant one of the following. First of all, he could have been meaning the gifts of the Spirit. Great grace was upon them all. In other words, the Holy Spirit filled and flowed through the entire fellowship so that they were all using the gifts that, that, that had been given to them. In other words, there was an abundance of gifts of the Spirit being on display. And that, that, could, that could fit the definition. The other thing he could have meant is that God's favor, his protection, and his blessing was on the entire fellowship. And that certainly could apply too. And then the third thing it could have meant is that they had great favor among the people living in Jerusalem. You think about all these pilgrims that came and their needs are being met. Nobody's homeless. Everybody's taken in. Everybody, you know, nobody's going hungry of all, the, of all the disciples. People are genuinely caring for one another. And, you know, people, they look at that and they go, man, there's something different about these people. They, they, actually, they actually love each other. I think more likely it was a combination of all the above. Great grace was upon them all. It says that they had all things in common. Man, needs were met. Nobody lacked and all who were possessors of lands or whole houses sold them. Now, if you think about it, that was a practical need. There was a legitimate, urgent, practical reason. You go from 120 believers to 3,120 believers, and later on 5,000 believers in a matter of days or weeks, and most of them are, are pilgrims from outside, especially at Pentecost. They were people that came from outside of the city, and they probably more than likely wanted to stick around to learn more about Jesus Christ. And so now all of a sudden there's a ministry, there's a need. What do we do with all these people? And the church stepped up and met the needs. I, I love that. You know, we've done that before. We, no, I haven't sold our stuff and given to people, but when a need rises up in the church, I've seen this church rise up and meet needs. It's a beautiful thing to see. And that's the way, to me, that's the way any many, many ministries should, should start, basically. There's a need. God 
makes that need aware to some believers. He raises up people, and then they meet the need. They, they are obedient to it. It's, it's instead of, you know, if we build it, they'll come. Well, we'll start a kid's ministry. We'll just pray that a bunch of kids show up. No, no, we've got kids. Man, they need to be ministered to. Hey, the Lord's laid it on my heart. I want to I teach these kids. I want to see the next generation grow up to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Boom, there's a ministry. That's the way things should happen. And that's what we see here in chapter 4. Listen, selling possessions and laying at the apostles' feet, that wasn't commanded, and it certainly wasn't expected. In fact, in chapter 5, we'll get to that in a few minutes, Peter's going to tell Ananias, while it remained, was it not your own? You didn't have to give it. You didn't have to sell it. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? You could have just kept it. You didn't even have to donate it. You could have kept it for yourself, for your retirement or whatever. So it wasn't commanded or expected, and it also didn't last very long. I mean, it's great, but it didn't last very long. Because if you look in some of the epistles, it gets addressed in some of the epistles. Because later on, sooner or later, it would be abused. Why? Because people are involved. (laughs) The flesh, you know. Sooner or later, it's going to be abused. Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that some, that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So already, already in the church of Thessalonica, there were people that were taking advantage of others. Paul says, man, man, they need to be working. They need to be occupied. Now, this is not scriptures, but there's a, a document that was discovered. I, I forgot when it was discovered, but it's called the Didache. And what its title is, The Teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles, or Nations, by the Twelve Apostles. And basically what it was, is kind of like a church manual. And it was based on biblical principles, but it's not, it's not inspired. So don't, I'm not like, this is the inspired word of God. But it gives you an idea of the things that the church dealt with in the first century. I want to read this to you. If the visitor, he's talking about visitors coming to your church or your home. If the visitor is someone who is passing through, help him as much as you can. However, he is not to stay for more than two days or three out of necessity. You know, visitors are like fish, right? They're great when they're there the first day. After a couple days, it's like, you know, it's time to go. (laughs) I'm sorry. If you're ever a visitor and you're more than a few days, I hope you don't feel that. <laughs> All right, I shouldn't have said that. This is what also says. If the visitor wishes to settle in your community, then, if he is a craftsman, he should work for his living. But if he does not have a trade, then use your own judgment to decide how he is to live among you as a Christian, but he's not to live in idleness. If he is unhappy with this arrangement, then he is a Christmonger. I don't think everyone's called Christmongers. Be on the watch for such people. So, you know, this didn't last very long is my point. Pretty soon, things changed. And it certainly wasn't the standard for the church. Paul wrote this in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 and 8. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
It wasn't like the apostles were like, you know, if you're really spiritual, you're going you're gonna to give, you know, so that we, you know, we don't have to do any work or anything like that. Paul wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 about the, 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 what they call, he's called the number. And what it is, it was basically a list of widows in the church that were supported by the church. That their financial needs, maybe their physical needs, whatever it was, it was met by the church. But even then, Paul had to kind of lay it down a little bit of guidelines so that it wouldn't be abused. He said in 1 Timothy 5.3, honor widows who are really widows. And what he was pointing at is if someone has children, their family, if they're Christians anyways, their family's first responsibility is to care for their to care for their elderly mothers or well in this case it would have been mothers and then he also mentions an age there was a certain age and there was a certain criteria and here's one of the criterias the 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 widow was supposed to have been the wife of one man well reported for good works if she has brought up children if she has lodged strangers if she has washed the saints feet if she has relieved the afflicted if she has diligently followed every good work so even even there in that church Ephesus you know Paul's like, hey, you know, we don't want people to take advantage of this. So it was, it was already, t- it, it, what they did here in chapter 4, it was great. It was, it was, you know, the Lord was just moving on people's hearts, but it wasn't required. So some of you might say, man, I think the church should do that today. Man, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> yeah, if the Lord lays something on your heart, in fact, the Lord may lay something on your heart like that. You know, I, I just want to sell this. I want to donate it to the church as a benevolence fund or something like that. You know, we've had people not sell things necessarily, but we've had people give us, you know, things, money for that purpose. The Lord may lay something on your heart is what the, the, the people did here in Acts chapter 4. I don't want to discourage anybody from doing that. I'm not saying, you know, hey, don't do it, you know. I'm not, I don't want to discourage you, but it's not expected, and it's certainly not demanded and I got to tell you, it doesn't make you more spiritual than anybody else necessarily. I mean, if you're being obedient to the Lord, that's a good thing. If the Lord's laying it on your heart, yeah, that's a good thing. But make sure it's the Lord's directing you, that you're not being coerced, you're not being shamed or manipulated. I used to get so angry and watch those televangelists, you know, on TV. You know, they, 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 you know, ah, oh, you know, they talk about how their ministry is dying and, you know, it's on death, on life support. And if, you know, God said that there's somebody out there who's going to mail in $5,000 or something, this seed money, you know, and, and here you've got this, this poor widow who probably is on a limited income. She loves the Lord and she's like, man, maybe the Lord's talking to me. And, and, and she feels kind of like coerced or, or kind of manipulated into doing something like that. Man, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't be coerced, shamed, or manipulated. And also make sure your motive in giving is right. And we're going to see that here. A great example of a good motive here. Verse 36. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We're going we're gonna to learn more about Barnabas as we go through the book of Acts. He's mentioned in some of the epistles. Barnabas, the, the disciples nicknamed him son of encouragement. Why? Because he was an encourager. That was, that was his characteristic. I have known people, and I know people, I don't call him Barnabas, but I, I've, I've told people, I said, man, you have the gift of encouragement. 
Whenever you talk to me, man, you just encourage me. And you probably know people like that too. We read that he's a Levite, which is kind of interesting. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there's all these commands regarding the Levites. And the Levites in Deuteronomy 18 verse 1, they're told that they're not to have allotted portions of land for their own possession. They had gardens and they had cities, but they weren't to own the land, the tribal land, like the rest of the tribes of Israel. Because God says, I'm their, I'm their portion. But here we see a Levite who had land. It says he was of Cyprus, so he wasn't of the land of Israel, so maybe that was like a loophole. I, I, you know, I don't know. Or maybe, and this is what I think probably is the case, I think he might have just been a, a, a newborn convert to Christ. And you know, the, the priesthood was pretty corrupt at that time when Jesus' ministry, I mean, they were, they were corrupt. You can, you can historically read if you look at, at Josephus' writings. And so maybe, maybe he was just, he just owned land because everybody else did. And then he had an encounter with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit just completely transformed his heart. And he's like, man, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't need this. I'm going to sell it. I want to, I want to donate this. It, it could be, I'm not saying it is. So as we get to the end here of chapter four, you know, a couple things have occurred. First of all, Satan, you know, he's a liar, he's a thief, and he tried a frontal assault on the church, on the first church. And he had the apostles arrested, Peter and John, brought before the Sanhedrin. They're arrested. They're kept overnight. They're intimidated. You know, you're, they're sitting in a circle with all the, the, the powerful people, the people that had the control over their life and death. You know, so there was intimidation. They threatened them, uh, excuse me, threatened them. And it was all an attempt to silence the apostles and the church. And it didn't work. That was plan A. That was devil's, the devil's plan A. So instead of attacking the church from without, he went to plan B. And plan B was he attacked the church from within. And we see that here in chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now the fact that this follows right after being told about Barnabas, I think there's a correlation there. I think they probably saw the recognition that Barnabas received. And Barnabas didn't do it for recognition, but what he did I think became known because we're reading about it. And I think what happened with Ananias and Sapphira it started with envy, wanting recognition, wanting to be the man. Look, he's getting recognition. Man, they, they, man, I, I, I want that kind of recognition. And that, of course, stems from pride. But the problem was, it wasn't a true conviction. It wasn't what the Lord had laid on their hearts. And so, to sell their possession and then lay it at the feet of the apostles and pretend basically that they had laid it, that it was all of it, it became the sin of hypocrisy. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite, it actually refers to an actor under an assumed character, a stage player. You could call all the people in Hollywood hypocrites because, you know, that was the age. Anyways, we'll go there. But that's what a hypocrite was, an actor under an assumed character. 
George MacDonald wrote this. Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be, but one is not. Now in chapter 5, there's another gift of the Spirit that we become aware of. It becomes manifest now, and the Holy Spirit here gives Peter a word of knowledge. And what is a word of knowledge? It's a supernatural knowledge about a person or a situation that the Spirit reveals to someone that you, you couldn't have got it any other way. It's the Holy Spirit revealing that. And, and that takes place here. Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? How did Peter know that? The Holy Spirit revealed that to him. Verse 4. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. There's a few points that we can pick up out of here. First of all, he said, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan was behind this. Satan, you know, in the Bible, he's Lucifer. He was a created angel, and he sinned. And his sin was the sin of pride. And here, he's appealing to Ananias and Sapphira's pride, because that's his playbook. In fact, I would venture to say pride is the source behind most, if not all sin, is the sin of pride. The other thing that I can derive out of here anyways is that Ananias and Sapphira were believers because you can't lie to the Holy Spirit if he's not in you. And then I think even a more important point is that the Holy Spirit's not a force or the inanimate spirit of Christ. He's a person that can be lied to. You don't lie to a force, but you can lie to a person. And Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. And he said, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, there was no obligation to sell their possessions. There was no obligation, once they sold their possessions, to give any of the proceeds away. They had no obligation to give at all. The problem was, they tried to look the part rather than being the part. That was their problem. And so Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later on he says, you have not lied to men but to God. And here's another important point. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and is God. So we see the Trinity mentioned right here. Well, he continues, verse 5. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. I like to say buried. I don't know why, but anyways. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her, or buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. So what we saw at the beginning of the message this morning, we saw the purity of the church. 
Man, they, they love one another. They're, they're just devoted to one another. Same heart, same mind. You know, that, that's a group of people that are filled with the Holy Spirit that are all, all, not without, without exception, they're all submitted to the Holy Spirit. And when you see that, man, first of all, there's power. It's a powerful witness. But you also see this unity that you, won't see, you don't see anywhere else. So we saw the purity of the church in chapter 4. And here in chapter 5, we see the polluting of the church through the sin of envy, pride, and hypocrisy. And if it had been left unchecked, it would have paralyzed the power of the church, of this early church. If God hadn't done something, it would have paralyzed them. Their witness would have been, it would, it would, just, it would, have, it would have fallen apart. And some people like to say, well, this is God disciplining Ananias and Sapphira. No, I, I, God judged Ananias and Sapphira and took them out, <laughs> killed them. I mean, you can't play it. You can't make a rosy picture. God killed them. He just took them out. Does that strike fear in you? It strikes fear in me. I'm like, oh, man. The result was a great fear came upon the church, and it was necessary. Listen. Well, God is a God of grace and mercy. And man, we, I, I thank the Lord for his grace. I thank you that he's a merciful God. I mention it every Sunday that God's merciful, that he's gracious. But God's also a holy God and a righteous God. Interesting, when you look at Ananias' name, his name is, means God is gracious. But Ananias learned that not only is God gracious, he's also holy. Sapphira. Her name, we actually get the word sapphire, the, you know, the beautiful blue or lapis lazuli, whatever. Beautiful blue gems. And her name really does mean beauty. And Sapphira might have been a very beautiful woman. But the sin of envy, pride, and hypocrisy will make even the most beautiful on the outside ugly on the inside. If you're dealing with that in your life, in your heart, man, I just encourage you. God sees it and it's ugly. He doesn't see beauty when you're envious of someone or you're jealous of someone or if you're prideful or if you're trying to be something that you're not. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We can preach about the love of Christ, which is true, but we can't neglect the holiness of God, which is equally true. And so God was judging the first church here, these individuals who Satan had used to pollute the purity of the church there. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 4, 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, I, recently, I've known of pastors, and I say it in the plural, who've had to step down from ministry because they fell into sexual sin. I, 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 I'm not going to name them, obviously, but I, know, I personally know pastors in our area that have had to do that why because they forgot about the holiness of god and they forgot about the fear of the lord fear of the lord is the best thing for you and i 
You know, if you think about it, if God still killed religious deceivers today, how many of us would be here this morning? <laughs> it's something to think about. And I'm not that guy. Uh, what's that guy, the, the insurance salesman that always talks about that? Or the uh, lawyer, James Suck. Think about it. <laughs> All right. Listen, the temptation to play the hypocrite... I've been tempted to do that. I don't know if you've ever been tempted to. Maybe just your pastor, but I've been tempted to play the hypocrite. The temptation to play the hypocrite is when we are more concerned with our reputation than with our character. When we're, we're not, you know, the character is what takes place in our hearts in private when we're not around anybody else. Do you care about that? Because you're, it's not like nobody sees it. You're, you're before the holy God who's viewing your life. Are you more concerned with what people think of you or what God thinks about you? Because God cares about our character. And God wants our heart in our obedience and not our lip service. I close with this, chap- with this verse, Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and he called them hypocrites. And here's this loving Jesus, but he called people out that were the hypocrites. And he said, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. I just pray this morning, and it's a prayer for myself as well. It's not just you guys, I'm praying for you. No, it's a prayer for all of us this morning. That our hearts are right before the Lord. That we're not dealing with these thoughts of envy or thoughts of, of jealousy or thoughts of unforgiveness or anger or anything like that. But that we genuinely care more about our character than our reputation.